Take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 4. Uh, there, there's only really a final set of instructions here in two verses. There's, there's not a lot of um, instructional teaching, I think, to be done here, frankly. But there is definitely some exhorting to do, and there's some thinking to be done here. So I don't know really how long uh, we'll spend in these two verses this morning. We'll be reading verses 5 and 6 of Colossians chapter 4, with the plan being that next week as we observe the Lord's Supper together, we will finish with the final greetings of the book of Colossians and make a few observations from it. But I didn't want to combine all that into one. I really felt like these verses were worth considering on their own merit and that they should be considered. We have gone through the book of Colossians together now, and we've spent a lot of time in it. And uh, we have received a lot of instruction. If you were to go back through just these four chapters and think about the instruction we've received, there's been a lot in these four chapters. Uh, you might think too much at this point. It's been a long time that we've spent in a book with four chapters. But I think when you get here to the end, uh, verses 5 and 6 present somewhat of a unique challenge. So let me just read them to you, and then I want to begin with a question. Verse 5 of Colossians chapter 4. Here's Paul's final, final word to the church. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. This is Paul's great evangelistic call to the Colossian church. And for those of you who are new to this idea, you might hear that word evangelistic and wonder what in the world I'm talking about. For many of us, we're familiar with the terminology, but we don't think about it as we should. We should think about this. This is Paul's call to act among outsiders in the world around us in a way that displays the grace of God and that extends the invitation of God into the relationship with God that the church already knows and experiences. That is evangelism. To take the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ's forgiveness, His reconciliation of us to His Father, eternal life with God, eternal joy with God, and an end to sin and suffering, to take that news into a group of people defined here in verse 5 as what? Outsiders. Now, lest we tend to despair... When we think of that word, outsiders, I want to think about this for a second and again begin with a question. The question is this. Can you think where you're sitting right now, assuming you are a Christian, faithfully serving the Lord, can you think back to the time when one of God's people extended the gracious invitation of God through the gospel to you, an outsider, or to a parent or a grandparent or whoever began the tradition, the practice of faithfully attending the body of Christ where you heard the gospel 
and receive Jesus as your Lord. Who was the person who extended the message to outsiders that resulted in you being here today? Just think about that for a moment. Uh, if I were to answer that question, I would say that my grandfather, who has passed away, was visited by deacons at the First Baptist Church of Vandalia and was invited to church and went to church and heard the gospel and through visiting with deacons and other men at the church, trusted the Lord, made a profession of faith, began taking his family. My dad was introduced to the gospel because of that, because someone went to outsiders, my grandfather and my grandma. My dad heard the gospel and was convicted enough that when my grandfather then stopped attending the First Baptist Church of Vandalia, um, my dad wanted to go back and began to go back on his own as a 16-year-old. Going back, taking with him his brother and sister to the youth group there, at which point, after a time, my grandfather and my grandmother returned to the church and served there faithfully until he became bedridden and he died some years ago with a profession of faith and I will see him again with the Lord. So that was how I would answer that question. I am in the church, in the body of Christ, reconciled with the right relationship with God today because some deacons and some friends who were of one and the same group visited my grandfather who was a Navy guy, a drinker, a worldly guy, and invited him to church, continued to visit him, and implored him to receive the gospel, and eventually overwhelmed him to get a profession of faith and a commitment and his children were impacted, and he himself, I believe, was later saved by the work of God. So that is how the church reached the outsiders in my life. How about you? It's something that you need to think about. You know, if you grew up in the church, and I did, I grew up in the church, you might have to think back to the work of God in a previous generation of parents or grandparents that exposed you to the gospel in such a way to bring you here. You may have to think back to this. You may have to ponder this, but at some point in time, through some way, some work of God, you were exposed to the gospel by someone inside the church who proclaimed that message to someone outside the church. There is no other way. There is no other way. That is the testimony of every Christian. Now, maybe you were visiting churches. Maybe, maybe because of the culture that we live in, you just associated, you'd never been to church before, and you just associated church with, that's where you go when you need help, and I know I'm desperate, and I know I need help. But when you went there, if you heard the gospel, you heard it from the lips of someone. And if you sat down and you shared with someone what was going on, you were talking with an insider. Someone was giving their time to an outsider. Someone was sacrificing. Someone was serving. Someone was speaking to a person because this is what outsiders are. 
who seemed unlikely to respond in the way that we wanted them to. How does a Christian want an outsider to respond to the gospel? It's an easy question. That ought to be an easy question. I mean, it shouldn't be any... We want them to respond with a faithful commitment to serve the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want to see their life transformed so that they're no longer dominated by sin. They're no longer on a path of darkness leading out to just the oblivion of what they perceive as chance, which is really God's wrath in this lifetime, only to die and stand before God and give an account before Him and be sentenced to hell for eternity because of their unrepentant rebellion against Him. That's how we want them to respond. The exact opposite of that, by faith, receiving the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in Him, trusting in His providence, laying their life in His hands because, of course, He knows better than we do, and serving Him with all their heart. That's how we want them to respond, and yet we can admit that when we talk to outsiders, it often feels unlikely, doesn't it? It does. Johnny's nodding. It feels unlikely. Yes, we can be honest. Because if you have attempted this in the past, you have probably been met with rejection of one form or another. Maybe that rejection was somebody telling you, I don't care what you have to say. Get out of my house. Quit talking to me about this. But most of the time, the rejection is more subtle than that, isn't it? It's, oh, well, thank you. I appreciate, yes, okay, let's still be friends, but I don't really want to talk about this anymore. That's that's basically what it boils down to, right? Or let's debate about this for the next 10 years of our lives. And every time you say something, I'll say something else just so I can get my little aha moment in to make you think and stumble, and I can walk away dodging all the conviction of what God's Word actually says about my sin and impending judgment. We know what happens. And sometimes you get the rejection that is the most painful when someone sees and hears enough of the gospel that a light flickers and they know, wait a minute, there is truth in this. Wait a minute. There is wisdom in God's word. This resonates. This makes sense. And they make a profession of faith. And they start to serve the Lord. And you see them in the fellowship of your church. And you begin to love them. And you begin to care for them. And then, like the seed that sprouts and is burned up by the sun in the parable of the sower, it just falls apart. And the Lord Jesus tells us, like a, like a, a, a dog returning to its vomit, right back to the same way of living that it was before. And I think that that, I can tell you as a pastor, is probably the most painful type of rejection. And I say that willingly admitting there's some naivety on my part because my wife and my mother and my father, a rival sister-in-law and his family are all professing believers. So there may be a rival sadness in the rejection of the gospel when someone whom you love so much is impenetrable by the word. But for me, from my perspective, seeing the glimmer of hope and change and the light of God's word flicker on and then just go dark of apostasy is the most painful. And yet these verses call us to this ministry and task.
we are only here because of this ministry and this task. And it takes a Holy Spirit gift of hope to partake in this ministry. It really does. It takes a Holy Spirit given gift of gentleness to handle the rejection and to continue on. It takes a divine faithfulness to proceed in this work. And that's why people don't do it. Because in order to be filled with the Spirit in such a way that the hope and the faithfulness and the gentleness and the love persist through rejection, to be filled with the Spirit in such a way takes effort and commitment and dedication and prayer and devotion. And it is a painful thing to do sometimes. But when you see the gospel change the life of a person so utterly and completely that the only being in the universe that you can attribute the power of that change to is the God who you prayed to that person for. When you see that, there is no greater joy or happiness in any work in your entire life that you'll ever set yourself to. This is what Paul gave his life for. And so in this parting instruction to the Colossians, he gives us these two verses. Now, I want to think through the phrases that he says in these verses with you, okay? Because this is all stuff that you should know, but I want to think through it. And it says in verse 5, walk in wisdom. That's the first phrase I want to think about. Think about that. Now, you have heard me say many times, and I'll be saying this till the day I die, Christianity the faith that we've committed ourselves to is a thinking person's faith. You need to understand what I mean by that. There are a lot of religions out there in the world that are just ritualistic. You know, it's just, and, and, and their holy scriptures are just a hodgepodge collections of, of spiritual sounding sayings that, that people have to try to cobble together and, and overcome inconsistencies and, and, and separate into different segments in order to make any sense of it at all. That's not the Bible which follows a linear progression through Abraham, through creation, through Abraham, all the way to the Messiah who comes and then instructions to prepare for his second coming. That's not God's word. We belong to a thinking faith. And the call here to walk in wisdom implies you should be thinking about the way that you are living. Walking is, is always attributed to a way of living, a manner of living. It's action. So if we're going to walk in wisdom... That means we're not going to be like zombies going through the events of life simply following whatever little direction that the events of life point us to. We are going to be thoughtfully living our lives under the wisdom of God's Word. Real wisdom. Walk in wisdom. Now, one of the interesting things about these two verses is I really thought about them over the last 48, 72 hours. One of the interesting things about them is... When you receive simple instructions, the instructions are often more interesting when you think about what they imply rather than what they overtly state. And when it says walk in wisdom here, of course we know 
that we're always supposed to be doing that, right? I mean, if I stood up here and said, walk in foolishness, that, I'm, I'm, right? I mean, you would look at me and, and say, that doesn't sound right. You know, I, I think he, he's not reading from the same book. So it's a simple thing. You know, it's, it's like seeing a caution sign somewhere. It's something that shouldn't need to be said, and yet when things that shouldn't need to be said are said, what does that imply? It implies that we forget this stuff. There is a tendency in human beings to default to a casual approach of living where we simply get on the the, the guardrails of life and we just ride them through mindlessly. And that's how we live each day, and that's how we live each week. And we know, you know, we're on rails here. We are like, like being at a theme park and sitting in a, in, in, in a compartment, and it's all dictated. You know, you, you ride a, a roller coaster for the first time, and you have no idea what's coming. I mean, it's, it's uh, part of the excitement is you did not expect that to happen. You did not, you know, I remember, <laughs> this probably should is one of the stories I should leave out, but I'm, I'm working from notes and not a transcript today, so I'll exercise leeway here. Have you ever ridden the beast at Kings Island? Just a show of hands. We're all from around this area, right? Yes, okay. So I thought this, would, this wouldn't work in a big conference setting, but it works here, okay? You know, you go through the whole first section, and then you start to slowly click up that next. You know what I'm talking about? Those of you, there's two major drops, right? You know, the first time I rode the beast, my mom forgot that that second drop was coming, and I was just a little kid, and she told me that we were just going to coast right into the finish, and that is the opposite of what happens when you get to the top of the second hill, and I could still hear her screaming, I'm sorry, as we go flying now, because I had no idea. I was just a kid, you know? That's what life feels like to us. It feels like some exciting adventure because we don't know what's around the corner, but if we're not approaching life thoughtfully, we're really just on guardrails. We're just being governed by the events and the circumstances around us. That's not walking in wisdom. That kind of a casual approach to Christian living is not going to communicate anything to outsiders. That's what he's saying. It doesn't communicate anything. That's what they're doing. Just one thing to the next. On the other hand, I love it when a Christian person makes thoughtful, meaningful adjustments to their life. That's that's really one of my greatest blessings as a pastor, is when a Christian person examines their life and thinks about their life. Maybe it has to do with their schedule. Or or maybe it has to do with with the way they're approaching Bible reading. Or maybe it, it has to do with any number of things. But I love it when someone comes up to me and shares that they have thought about something in their life, and maybe to me it was no big deal, something I would have never considered bringing up, and they tell me that they have considered it, and they're going to be making a change. And then they explain the change and explain why they're going to do it. I love that. Do you know that's what discipleship is? You, you remember the story where the, the, the disciples are following Jesus around, and he says the difficult stuff about marriage, and you remember what one, of the, what one of the guys says? Now, this is thoughtful living, right? He says, if that were true, it would be better not even to marry anybody, right? <laughs> that's thoughtful. That's, what, that's thinking through the problem here, and what does the Lord say? He said, well, not, that, not everybody can accept that kind of a thing. You know, There's more correction, but that's what discipleship is. What does God's Word say? What's most important here? What would be most valuable here? What would be best here? Okay, what would I have to do to have what's best here, to do what's best here? Okay, what change then would I have to make? Can I make that change? 
Not everybody can accept that, you know, with marriage and the Lord. Okay, I can't do that, okay? What can I do? That's discipleship. That's discipleship. That's walking in wisdom. When's the last time you did that with your life? I hope it was yesterday. Strip down, strip down the cart and the harness and the bar that's on the life that you're living right now. Now, I'm not saying don't go to work tomorrow or don't do... I'm saying mentally, in your mind, strip that away and ask yourself, do the evaluation, am I walking in wisdom? Is what I'm doing here what is wise and what is best? You know, Christians are supposed to ask that question. And it matters not just in the context. This is where we get this wrong. It matters not just in the context of me becoming a better person. It matters to outsiders. It matters. One of the worst things that a Christian person can do thought going, is live their life habitually and thoughtlessly in such a way that outsiders don't see any practical thought going into any of the things that they're doing. They're not putting thought into the things that they're doing. Not spiritual thought, not spiritual consideration. They see you living your life with churchy phrases and doing churchy things and saying Christian things while at the same time appearing not to put any more spiritual thought into the way you're living it than they are. What kind of a difference is that going to make? Not much. Not much. We have to stop and think. You know, wisdom is the application of knowledge and in order to apply knowledge, you have to first know something That's why nobody listens to the wisdom of little children, or at least we shouldn't. It's becoming more popular in our day and age. You have to know something to apply wisdom. That's what we're doing here. We are training. We are working. Jesus spent three years walking side by side with his disciples to teach, to breathe God's word, to instruct them. And Once you know something, what do you do with it? I mean, my word. It's got to be one of the most, I've never been like a teacher in school. It's got to be one of the most depressing things in the world to teach some big important subject and and watch people do absolutely nothing with it. That's got to be frustrating. We're wasting our time here if we're not applying God's word to our lives. So walk in wisdom. And then the next phrase, toward those who are outside, which I think implies another thing. That on the one hand, it's easier for a Christian, and this is just, this is my hypothesis, okay, this is my thoughtfulness from the verse, okay, this is not, you know, written stone. I think it is easier for a Christian to be thoughtful about what they do among the church and church fellowship than it is for them to be thoughtful about how they live for the Lord out in the world. And what I mean by that is the church is always encouraging us to think. There are leaders in the church who are thinking and trying to guide in a spiritual way. We're constantly singing spiritual songs. We're being implored to do spiritual things. It's when we get outside the church that there's the tendency to kind of turn things off and go on autopilot and just be carried around. But we have to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Obviously, we're supposed to be wise all the time, but it takes thoughtfulness to do this out there. It's not easy. How do you do that? I, I want to point out three things here about how we might walk in wisdom deliberately among outsiders. Number one, I'd say you have to demonstrate some commitment. You've got to demonstrate some commitment to outsiders. You know what that means? They've got to see faithfulness they got to see it. They don't have it. It looks weird to them. I was asked by a 
professing Christian person this last week. How often, you know, how long it takes me to prepare to preach a sermon and then how long those sermons take to preach. He was surprised. <laughs> he was surprised. Uh, he thought more in the 10-minute range. We would be gone by now, and that would be okay with a few of you today. But over time, if that's what we did over and over again, you know, we, that's not demonstrating faithfulness with God's Word. You've got to demonstrate some faithfulness, some commitment. Uh, in Luke chapter 14, verse 15, Luke 14 is the parable where Jesus says that there was a great king and he gave a banquet. It's not the wedding feast, that's a different parable. But a great king and he was going to give a banquet and he sends out invitations. And, and, and verse 15 is where the Lord says, and one by one people began, and this is what it says, to make excuses. And you know what the next, the next part of the verse says? And the king became angry. <laughs> now, you know, if you've got kids, you probably can, you know, associate those feelings that the king has with some of your own feelings where excuse after excuse after excuse and you begin to get angry. Perhaps if you have a spouse, you know what that's like. Or if you're just a person in the world, the king becomes angry. Why? Because there was not a commitment here. There was no faithfulness here. Here are people who are being invited and there is not a devotion. There is not a commitment. And they make excuses. And it's not that any one of the excuses, you know, wouldn't be relevant. You know, I got to go do this. This is important. I, there's a marriage. There's this. There's that. or what. It's not that any of it's not important. It's that that should not be the response when a king calls you, when someone... You know, faithfulness, there should be a commitment there. We have to demonstrate that commitment. You know what commitment... There's a simple equation here. Commitment equals, that's an equation, a commitment equals sacrifice. You know that? It does. It does. Do you know the difference between a committed runner and a non-committed runner? One of them runs when it gets cold and rainy and snowy and wet, and the other one stops running the moment that there is a good reason not to do it. Okay? That's the difference. Why? Because commitment requires sacrifice. I am not a committed runner. I don't look like a committed runner. And not at all. Why? I don't want to go out when it's cold and snowy and exercise and do all that stuff. You know, when I start to feel good about going out and exercising, you know, April and May starts to feel nice to me. But right now, this is not a good time of year for my own personal weight gain. I don't have commitment. I don't want to sacrifice in that way. You have to demonstrate Christian commitment to the rest of the world. They'll see that. You go to church faithfully every Sunday. Why don't you come and do this? I can't. Why? We, we worship the Lord on Sundays. Say, well, don't say that, Pastor, because you're starting to sound very legalistic. I'm not making a law for you. I'm giving you an example of a commitment that the rest of the world will recognize. You understand? I'm not going to knock on your door the moment you miss a church service. I'm telling you, that is a way to demonstrate commitment to the world. Why don't you come do this? Why don't you come do this? I can't. Why? I don't have the money. One of the reasons I don't have the money is I give faithfully to the Lord. Oh, you're not supposed to tell other people what you give. No, that's alms. Read, read the, the, the chapter. That's alms. You're not supposed to tell when you're giving money out to the poor. I'm fine with you telling other people that you give faithfully to the Lord. Demonstrate commitment. Give glory and honor to Him. There are... Hundreds of ways, probably, 
that the people in this room could thoughtfully examine their lives and ask themselves the question, what changes can I make? Not so that I'll stop sinning. What changes can I make that will demonstrate the wisdom of God and commitments I make towards Him that will be observable to outsiders? Those things matter. They matter. Why don't you wear this? I have convictions about modesty. Why don't you watch this? I don't think that's appropriate. Why, why, why? Because I serve the Lord Jesus and I don't think He would be pleased with that. And I'm I'm not up here making rules. I'm describing a way of approaching your life that will demonstrate faithfulness to people who are outside. And if you think, well, they're not going to understand that, of course they're not going to understand that. Outsiders are outside for a reason. They're not on board with the plan. But you begin to fold that into the theology and the doctrine and the faith behind those convictions. Now you're getting somewhere. Now you're getting somewhere. Why do you go to church every Sunday? Because I worship the Lord. Well, I mean, I worship the Lord too. You know, I worship Him here. No, 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 no. Did you know that one day all of the church is going to be called together to worship before the Lord in heaven? And, and we're called to do that here on the earth too. The Bible tells me that I'm not supposed to forsake the assembly of believers together. I'm not supposed to make a practice of that as is the habit of some. Have you made that a habit? Do you know what the Bible says? See, that might be tough for you if you're just making rules for yourself. But if you're coming to conclusions because you're walking in wisdom and evaluating these things in your life, you'll be able to talk about them. You know, you can talk about the stuff you think about. It's the stuff that you don't really think about that you suddenly start drawing blanks when people ask for a reason. Right? It is. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outsiders. So demonstrate commitment. That's the second thing I'll say, and we'll be quick with these. Model righteousness and holiness. That should go without saying. Model righteousness and holiness. Be okay with being different. Morally. Be okay with being different and holding yourself to a different standard. Be okay with that. I'm not saying go around and brag about it and say, look at me, I'm some high and mighty guy. Just model it. Just be it and it'll stand out. And be okay with that. That's what holiness is. Being holy is being separate. Be okay with that. I'm not saying never be among outsiders. Be okay with being different while among outsiders and very different. Drawing convictions that are very different. Making stands that they will not understand. Be okay with that. That's walking in wisdom among outsiders. And I'll give you one more. Extend invitations. Just turn to Romans chapter 10 with me real quick. Because I want to reemphasize something this morning while we're on the subject here. While we're visiting the topic. I want to reemphasize something very important from Romans chapter 10. We're just going to read eight verses. Beginning in verse 8. Romans chapter 10 verse 8. Now this is Paul explaining. Romans chapter 10 verse 8. And he asks a simple question, but what does it say? The Bible says the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul didn't preach a complicated gospel, did he? He didn't. If you hear that, you think, well, that doesn't sound like it's enough. (laughs) You know, because then they got to come to church and they got to be baptized. That's not the gospel. That's the effect of the gospel. Working in someone's life, that's not the gospel. 
What's the gospel? Jesus died on the cross for your sin. He rose from the grave so that you can have eternal life with him. And he's calling you to repent of your sin and trust him and the forgiveness that he's provided by the cross. He died on the cross because you're a sinner. He paid the price, his own life, that you are going to pay in hell. He's calling you to trust him. And if you do that, you'll have eternal life with him. It's the gospel. It's not complicated. It's not hard. It doesn't come with, and there are four or five addendums that we also will add. No, it doesn't come with any of that. It's a simple presentation. And what the gospel does is it brings the person who has believed it into fellowship with those who can then disciple and teach and instruct. You understand? This isn't complicated. Verse 10. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, not with the hands one works unto righteousness. No, 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 no. With the heart, when you believe, when you have faith, you have faith unto righteousness, not your own righteousness. The righteousness you receive because Jesus paid for it on the cross. You understand? That's why we could say the heart believes and we're righteous. Not some righteousness you've achieved. It's been achieved for you with the heart one believes unto righteousness. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall people believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. If you think the preacher in that sentence is me behind this pulpit, you are not reading Paul correctly here. The preacher is a proclaimer. It is simply someone who gives the message he is building to with all those questions. How can they get there if they don't believe? How can they believe if they don't hear? How can they hear if someone doesn't proclaim it? But to the person who does, how beautiful are the feet of those. Feet are not beautiful things. Okay, if, if you think they are, you're weird. Okay, they're not. Baby's feet, maybe, when you get them really clean. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring this message. Who preach the gospel of peace. That's the invitation. That's why we call it an invitation. Come and have peace with God. Come and be a part of God's family. Receive an inheritance. Not when he dies, when you die, receive an inheritance. Have a home that is better than the one you know now. It's an invitation. You don't have to go to some far off campus if you make it overcomplicated. It doesn't have to be. And you don't have to go to some far off country to give it. Where do you have to go? To outsiders. Colossians 4. Can you find any of them? Third thing we see in this phrase in Colossians chapter 4. I love this last part. We're almost done. Some of you didn't know I could get all this out of two verses. No, by now you know that I can. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside 
redeeming the time. Some translations say buying the time or making the most of the time. I love that part. You, you know what it is to redeem something, right? Like you take something that is worthless and spent, and you go and you, and you, you, you cash it in for some kind of monetary value, right? If you're going to redeem, you know, like a, a can, a recycled can or whatever it is, a bottle in the, in the olden days when some of you were kids, Clayton, Darlene, yeah. If you're going to redeem it, right, you don't, you don't do it while there's still, you know, soda pop in it. What you, you take it when it's, when it's done, when it's empty. You, you, you go and you cash and you get something. You get something out of something worthless. I think what this means, when you're in and among the world, outsiders, that's the context of this, you can either waste the time or use the time. You can either just kind of spend it up, in which case it won't be worth anything, or you can redeem the time that you have and make something out of it. You know, and this is the blessing for Christians. When you take the gospel, when you live thoughtfully, when you bring glory and honor to your heavenly Father, no matter the result, you are promised a reward. Some of us don't feel that way. We feel like there is no reward unless we experience it right now. There is no reward unless someone comes forward and gets baptized. There is no reward unless there's some big movement. I served in this ministry for a brief time and nothing happened. I shared once or twice and nothing happened. It was all a waste. That's not the truth. That's a lie. That's a discouragement from Satan. The Lord knows. The Lord sees. The Lord cares and He'll honor and He'll reward Redeem the time by doing this. What else are you going to do with it? We transition now into verse 6, which gets more practical. Let your speech always be with grace. Think about that word always for a second. Um, when we're told to always do something, uh, it, 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 it often, if you think about the things that you're told, always do this, always do that. They're often simple things that we are prone to neglect. For instance, when you are training a child and you, you know, I've done this a hundred times at least, you get to the bottom of the stairs right here where uh, we go after church and cars are going by. What do I say to my four and five-year-olds as I'm holding their hands and, and, and crossing the way? Say, always remember to look both ways Lift your head up, son. Look both ways. Sometimes we'll be halfway across, and I'll ask my son or my daughter, did you check for cars? You know, it's not hard to look both ways. It's very simple. We say to always do it because we neglect the simple thing, right? That's usually the context of these instructions. It's not hard for a Christian person who loves the Lord to season all of their speech, to season their speech, I should say, with graciousness and blessings from God. That's not hard. But it's hard to remember to always do it. That's what's hard. You understand? It's not hard for me to tell someone, you know, that the Lord loves me and I care about them and, and I'm actually praying for them and, and I want them to, to have a right relationship with God. It's not hard for me to, to... Those things are not difficult in the moment. The difficult part is always doing them. That's the hard part. And when we don't always do them, 
we do not do well among outsiders because they are looking, they are looking for the weaknesses. They are looking for the inconsistencies. They are looking for ways not to assault you with judgment. They are simply, that's how it feels sometimes. They're simply looking for ways to make themselves more comfortable with the sin that you have declared or that your faith declares is inappropriate and wrong. And one of the ways to do that is simply by finding inconsistencies in you to alleviate their own guilt. To always let your speech be seasoned with grace, which is salt, is really hard. I don't know how many aggravated conversations you had on the phone. I don't know how many times you've yelled at a telemarketer or an official or a kid's coach or whatever it is, a, a co-worker. It is hard to always let your speech be seasoned with salt. What is salt? It's funny as you should ask. Jesus uh, really uses the, only, the word salt the only other places in the New Testament. He uses it in the Gospels. You know, it's the whole don't let your light be hidden under a bushel, but let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. And if the... Something loses its saltiness, how can it regrain it? In other words, it's, it's, an, it's the idea, if you were to, to turn to uh, Matthew and read it, it's, it's Matthew 5, 16, it's the idea that salt or light is the grace of God on display by your conduct. Here's Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Salt, in this context, it came right before that in, in Matthew chapter 5. The context is, people will, in this case, Colossians 4, hear your speech and learn to give glory and honor in God for how you talk, what you say, how you speak. That didn't come from man. That's not like other people talk. That's not how other people deal with these things. That's not, they will give, just like someone may see your good works and say they do that because they're a Christian and they go to church and they, that's how people respond to your speech. It's demonstrating, not, this is not about saying nice things about people. This is not platitudes and niceties. It's demonstrating God's graciousness through what you say. It says, let your, Speech always be seasoned with or, uh, always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. This is where we'll close here. Christians who live their faith before outsiders will be called into question. Do you understand that? The question may not be sitting you down and interrogating you. But there will be questions about why you live the way that you live. I can tell you, I've experienced this firsthand. Some of you may or may not have. I, it's happening. You may not realize it if you're conducting yourself thoughtfully among outsiders. I have stumbled upon other people trying to explain to other individuals that I am also a pastor in what I do. And sometimes it gets very uncomfortable for them. Right, Because when you say someone is a pastor, when you say someone is a faithful Christian, when someone knows you go to church every Sunday, you serve the Lord with all your heart, that you're really a fundamental Christian, there are questions. 
They may not put them to speech, but they have them. Why? How? That's weird. Your speech and the way you conduct yourselves can provide an answer to those questions if you'll let it. It will. So this is a real challenge here. Now, I look around this morning and I see, um, as you all see, a fair amount of space in the seats around us. Okay? A fair amount of space. And some of that is due to sickness. Some of it is due to illness. I, I know of a, a number of those examples. But you know, when everybody's here, we had a huge number of people here last Sunday. When everybody is here, there's still space. There is room for discipleship. There is room for people here. We are not over or overworked. And if they're not here because we are faithfully living with purpose among outsiders and extending the invitation and they just don't want to do it. If that's why they're not here, my hope and confidence is in the Lord. But if even some of them are not here because we don't act in faith, in evangelism like we're called to do here, that's something that I don't want on my conscience. And you, you don't want it on your conscience either. I know you don't. And the only reason you're not acting in this way is either hopelessness or a, feel, a, feel, a feeling of futility, I can't do it, or fear. That's it. I mean, I could add, you don't really believe it, but I don't, I'm not going to say that about anybody here. I don't believe that. You're either hopeless and you don't think it'll work, or you're futile in your thinking and you don't think you can do it, or you're afraid. And I'm telling you, that is a terrible way to spend your time among outsiders in the world. If God has saved you and not raptured you to heaven, then he has left you here with a purpose and a commission. And he's given you time and he's given you a voice. And over and over again, we read from Romans, we, we read from Colossians. We could have continued through any number of books in the New Testament. Over and over again, he encourages us with the call. Do, are, are, are we going to look to God and say, yeah, you've called us to something, but we just can't do it? What a terrible thing to say about our God. What a terrible statement to make about him. How upset would you be at a boss who demanded you do a job that you couldn't do? What an awful thing to say about God. And I know that's not what we're saying. We're just afraid. And maybe distracted. Not thinking about it. Folks, you need to think about it. Not so we can have a congregation full of people. You need to think about it so that people don't stand before their eternal judge and be condemned to hell. You need to think about it to make the most of the time that you have. We can do better here. You can do better here. I think the Colossians could do better. And that's the encouragement of Paul at the end here. Those are his instructions. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I love you, and this is hard for me. It's hard because it's the kind of 
it's the kind of preaching that, that we all know is right and we all know we should be engaged in, but it's hard because in some ways, I, Father, you know, I feel the, the burden of trying to present this in a compelling way that will shake people from, from their numbness to this call. On the other hand, I know, in contrast with that, that I can't say anything compelling enough to change anyone's mind or heart about these things. That, Father, you are going to have to act here in my life and the life of the people among us if we're going to get anywhere with this. And I say that as if this is some unique thing, but Father, we need you to act in everything that we do if we're truly going to get anywhere. Father, I, I do pray for a sense of, of, of peace and faith among our people that they won't look or think about evangelism and lift it to some high pedestal to where it's just so far above them and, and so far, you know, for somebody else that they just think they're incapable here and, and it's going to take some aligning of the stars to, to make any sense of this. I thank you for the simple message that you've given us and I pray, Father, you'll make it simple to us that it'll roll off of our tongue, that it'll be a part of who we are, that it won't be hard or complicated to us because it's not. Little children can understand and talk about it. Father, please accompany the those of us faithful enough to proclaim it with thoughtful living. Deliberate living, not casual. Father, uh, be a part of, of our service as we close now. Receive these, these offerings from us. Use them for your kingdom. Bless this people. I thank you for their faithfulness, for their love, for their devotion, that, that people don't storm out and, and, and protest when I call them to hear your word. You've humbled us. You know us. Work in our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.